this evidence-based recommendation is pretty much hopefully giving you the confidence and hopefully as well um, educating the health professionals that it is okay for you to come to them with with information and and you are well researched in your health condition. Yeah but also too it shows what shouldn't be happening is you shouldn't be just be given one option for Mm. treatment like okay you've got PCOS therefore you need to go on the pill. It's like well hold on um what are the what are all of the options and also what are all of the you know like well you know we can't get into all the pros and cons but the give me some informed decision making and helping to make this as opposed to you telling me I need to do something. Hi I'm Claire Goodwin and this is the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. I have PCOS too and I know how hard it can be to get the help you need. So I bring together my expertise as a registered nutritionist and exercise scientist, together with other experts I trust and people with real life lived experience of PCOS to help you get the information you need to make a real difference to your symptoms. I'm super excited to announce the release of our new PCOS management app, Ovi. As someone who has PCOS, I saw firsthand how much hyper-personalized tweaks to my lifestyle had a dramatic impact on solving my PCOS symptoms. As a registered nutritionist and exercise scientist, I saw the same effect for many of my patients. But I also saw that only seeing me once a month or even every few weeks just didn't work for most people. Changing what we eat, how we move, and sometimes the very essence of who we are, like being a perfectionist, is really tricky. And in order to see real change, we need constant support and reinforcement. And we also need tools like recipes, workouts, and cheat sheets right in our pocket. So when we're in the midst of standing in the supermarket aisle, we know what to choose to help support our changes. My PCOS Protocol group program was an amazing start in helping to achieve this, but I knew we could do way better. I knew that we could get even more personalized, convenient, and provide an elevated user experience for you. So this is why I created Ovi, to give you your personalized PCOS pathway that's based off your symptoms and your goals right in your pocket so that you can access it at any time. And not just created by me, but by an incredible team of nutritionists, psychologists, physiotherapists, exercise physiologists, and more. So head over to our website, ov.io, that's O-V-I-E dot I-O, and take the questionnaire. It's completely free, and you'll find out what's driving your PCOS, or what I've formerly referred to as your PCOS root cause. I can't wait for you to be part of the OV community. So today we're talking all about how to advocate for yourself and we've got some new evidence that you can use in these conversations. So I'm talking with Emma, um, who's our senior nutritionist, who you would have heard on the podcast many times before, but both of us have, I mean, worked with thousands of patients, but also been through our own health journeys and have um, and both work also within the health system. So we kind of understand both sides. We understand it from a patient perspective and also from a health professional perspective. And it's just about finding that evidence that we can utilize to make the system work for us. Because I think that if you like are battling the system, then you're just going to get so frustrated. And it's so common. I have so many patients who come back to me and said, my doctor didn't really listen to me. They waved it off. They brushed it off. It's yeah. so common. I think it's more, it's the minority that say, yeah, my doctor was happy to pre- prescribe me this. Was happy for me to do these things. Yeah. Or was yeah. happy to even have a conversation about, about this. Yeah, so true. And I think that's, I mean, 
this is not bagging doctors. I mean, I like. <sighs> I think that there are many doctors out there who are fantastic. I think there are many doctors that are also quite shit. Um, and I also think that they've got their own constraints. Totally. Their own set of constraints. Yep. They've got yep. their own legalities that they need to Absolutely. adhere to. So and, and that's probably what, what causes them to become a bit shit, right? Yep. Like, and it's that frustration of working within that system. But it doesn't make it any easier for you. So... But one way we can get around that is, you know, instead of just having to spend your life finding new medical professionals to work with, is instead um, actually utilising like new evidence that we're going to give you to help have these conversations and help to work with them work within the system as well. Totally, because I think when we think about it, you have a doctor's appointment and they've typically allocated you 10 minutes, so long as they're not running late and it's not like five minutes, but to kind of pitch your case and for them to kind of come back to you with an answer um and most doctors want to have some sort of answer so it's often like pharma or prescription is really easy Mm. or they don't have a lot you know they've got for the next rest of their day they've got 10 minute um appointments Mm. thereafter 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 so they don't actually have time to sit there like we would do with our patients and maybe spend half an hour going over things or thinking about things maybe researching more um about what might be happening. But also a lot of that is in our own time as well. Totally. You know, like, yeah. so, I, yeah, I get it. But also, I, I mean, like, man, we do so much thinking and work outside of work. Outside that, like, of, like, the paid well, consult. Totally. Completely. Outside yeah. of what we're actually being paid for. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I I kind of, I totally get what you mean. But also, I'm just like, <laughs> but if you're really passionate about your job, that is yeah. what you're doing. You are thinking about this outside your job outside too. Outside your, yeah. But so if you think about it however many 10-minute patient slots that doctor mm. sees in one day. Like, totally. I, no wonder they're all burnt out as yeah, well. exactly. But then they don't have time to go and look into these things or try and even, in, where would they even know how to begin to look for the evidence on something? Yeah, yeah. especially if they're more of a general doctor and yeah. they're dealing with everything from the common cold to your foot fungus to, like, the... Any, you know, um, you know hypercholesterolemia to a really serious adrenal tumor or something like that you know that's such a such a massive spread of things that you cannot be an expert in anything and even even specialists even gynecologists endocrinologists again there's such a massive spread of things that they'll be seeing on a a daily basis that they often can't keep Keep up with with what's going on and so I think that's where this kind of comes in is if you can come to your doctor with evidence-based research um really quality research and you put it in front of them they'll probably take the time out to read it because they're probably interested themselves but for them to go and kind of find the needle in the haystack yeah they're probably not going to do that so we want to kind of share with you these resources so that you can come with to your doctor with kind of the idea of where you want to go absolutely and this is different from just finding a research paper on the internet and being like, look, this is what it says. Because we can make research basically say whatever we want the outcome to be. You just design the design the trial to suit what the outcome is, right? And that's really subpar research, but that is often what happens and or often you're like going to the internet and like trying to find something to support your case. And if you're looking for that, you can pretty much always find, find something. To, yeah. Or Whereas, you can take 
quite a bit of evidence out of context exactly well. it's very exactly. easy yeah yeah and this is why i mean you just give netflix an idea of what you want to push mm. um in terms of like uh, you think of any of the food documentaries of the last 10 years what the health like um the sea spiracy like vegan one, vegan one yeah, yeah like anything if you've got an agenda you will find research to support that yeah. i even see this in i get asked to comment on a lot of um by journalists to comment on things and just the the quality of the publication in terms of what they want to write about like the lower um lower quality publications like this one called she finds always requesting for um comment they are always the most just like clickbaity titles like Mm. the one what was it yesterday the salad that's um, the the worst for you or something like that or the highest most fat causing salad and no it's not Caesar mm-hmm. right so they've already come up with what the clickbait is and then they're looking for people to support that outcome mm-hmm. right it's just so bad because all of their stuff is like super cringy super clickbaity and I just feel sorry for anyone that's taking that and thinking that it is high like quality information but that's what we can also do with research so if you've got a point you can probably always find something to back it up but when we actually look at all of the available research this is where it becomes a lot more qualitative or not just qualitative but it becomes a lot higher quality and trustworthy because we're actually dealing with a lot bigger sample sizes of people we're also looking at okay there might have been 10 studies on this so far what is the what's the overall consensus Mm -hmm. there might have been two that were against but eight four and so therefore like that's where the evidence lies yeah and i think you might have heard us talk about how like um meta-analyses are like Mm. the gold standard and essentially well that's what they're doing they're taking all of the studies that fall under the that umbrella that are well executed studies that they see being really important and creating kind of a umbrella view over that so that you don't have to go and find all of those 10 studies and make that analysis yourself they've kind of done that for you and so the really cool thing is that Monash University which is um, a big university based out of Melbourne in Australia they have a dedicated team focusing on PCOS and they're essentially creating that giant umbrella cast view over every quality research study that's done for PCOS and creating essentially a summary of and guidelines they are guidelines to follow for best practice healthcare so that's what we're going to talk a wee bit about yeah so this is where when we're saying the evidence that you can take this is what we're saying is that Mm evidence from this as opposed to just that one article that you found and sometimes you know like there are new articles which shed light on a particular area and that's also interesting and especially if there's um if it's got you know like a big sample size that we talked about one a few weeks ago which was about hormonal birth control and weight gain and we talked about one single study and like so there's there's times where you can use a single study especially when it's been more of a randomized control trial but in this instance where it's like a big review of all the evidence then this is like really helpful especially for things like directing health practitioners in terms of how they should actually work with you and this was one of the areas of that the guideline that you can then use to to actually you know um 
ask your practitioner to kind of work with you. And this was one of the recommendations. So what they did is they went through all of the evidence and then especially in areas that they knew were really important and then so that's broken down into areas. And then they gave like a rating score for how um, strong the evidence was. So mm-hmm. if it's like a four out of four, then it's quite strong evidence. And then there was, so there's like coded things as evidence-based recommendation and or then clinical recommendation. So one of the ones that they looked at was how healthcare practitioners should actually work with their patients. And the, the rating for the evidence was four out of four. So incredibly strong evidence. And the recommendation, the evidence-based recommendation from that states that healthcare professionals should employ shared decision-making and support patient agency or ability to take independent actions to manage their health and, their health and care. Yeah, that's incredible. And that gives you so much confidence in that it is okay to go out and research for yourself and advocate for yourself. And a lot of doctors are quite anti that. They're really anti. And I mean, you can see why as well. So many people come to them with Dr. Google diagnoses that they've mm. given themselves. And and I think this is quite different. We see um, the majority of our clients with PCOS are very well educated, mm-hmm. especially on their health literacy and their understanding of what's going on for them is so high. Mm. And so, you know, we actually see, yeah, our, our clients or people with PCOS, they've done really good research and, and typically they, when they do come to their doctor, it's not a doctor Google diagnosis. It's, yeah, it's not like, oh, I've got this high test so I'm dying of cancer. It's not that. It's like, hey, this symptom is really bothering me. Like I am, it's really affecting my mental health and I need help with it. It's mm-hmm. like, that is the kind of, you know, or... I can see blatantly that my TSH, my thyroid stimulating hormone, is not optimal. Like, mm. what can we do about this? Yeah. Like, that's the kind of thing that we see people doing, and that is totally yeah, ac- acceptable. Or, totally. Or another one might be, like, wanting to get some progesterone support for, like, yeah. early um, pregnancy or anything like that. And, and again, it's like... To understand that that is where you need support and having acknowledged or recognized that um, your progesterone is lower or that you're at higher risk of miscarriage because of low progesterone with PCOS, um, you, you're you not just get pulling that off Google. Like You've yeah. done so much groundwork and I think this um, evidence-based recommendation is pretty much hopefully giving you the confidence and hopefully as well um, educating the health professionals that it is okay for you to come to them with, yes. with information yeah. and, and you are well researched <clears throat> in your health condition. Yeah, but also too it shows what shouldn't be happening is you shouldn't be just be given one option for mm. treatment like okay you've got PCOS therefore you need to go on the pill. It's like well hold on um, what are the what are all of the options and also what are all of the you know like well you know we can't get into all the pros and cons but the give me some informed decision making and helping to make this as opposed to you telling me I need to do something and I think that like flows really well into like another really um four point strong evidence-based recommendation is lifestyle management and that lifestyle intervention exercise alone or multi-component diet combined with exercise and behavioral strategies should be recommended for all women with PCOS for improving metabolic health including central adiposity and lipid profile which is not 
take the pill and come back and see us when you want to get pregnant. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also not the, oh, just go away and lose weight. It's yeah, like eat less and move more. more yeah. yeah, it's and it's also not for people with lean, you know, like kind of lean PCOS. Oh well, there's nothing you can do because you don't need to lose weight. So therefore, diet and lifestyle is not going to help you. No, this recommendation says clearly all women with PCOS, and they do say women. They do say earlier in the guidelines, and I know that. Um, I unfortunately was at a funeral when the announcement, the release was made, but you were there. Mm. When um, so Helena Teed, who's the professor at Monash, she uh, she all of the yeah, and she they had a big kind of like almost cutting cutting the ribbon releasing Mm. of the of the guidelines, and you sat in on that. And one of the things that she spoke about there um, was this part, right, about like that we when we're talking about women and people with PCOS is what we're talking about here is that anyone that was either assigned female at birth or currently identifying as woman, um, but that actually throughout the guidelines, they just use the term woman. Same thing when we say woman, sorry, we don't want, we don't mean to be um, exclusive. Yeah. yeah. But it's just, that's what, this is what the guidelines said. And this is why they use the term woman as opposed to, you know, maybe people, because also too, they found during the what did they say it was during the research for the guidelines that the overwhelming response was that if we just use the term people it was it was, it was kinda, like almost not acknowledging that this is a female, female condition. condition yeah so i think yeah what they what they do is they will use people or individual um as well as women but when they use the term woman it's collective of yeah. anyone who um, does or doesn't identify as a woman, and yeah. then they will also refer to where necessary um, for biological terminology, female. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's why they use that terminology. Yeah, um, I think as well going back to like why this lifestyle invention should be recommended for all women is again because whether you are um, lean, like you were saying before, you know, this is important mm. for even if you are lean PCOS. Typically, we do see, um, and there's like another recommendation that um, even in lean PCOS, glycemic um, status should be reviewed because insulin resistance is such a big driver, even for lean um, people with PCOS. No, and I think that's something, so when we're talking about glycemic control, we're talking about here is basically your blood glucose and insulin, right, which is early stage insulin resistance or you could even be later stage or pre-diabetes type 2 diabetes but this is something that also is really important to understand that weight gain does not cause insulin resistance it's not the yes it can exacerbate insulin resistance but it's not the first thing generally it's like with PCOS it is a symptom of Mm. insulin and testosterone causing this spiral but some people genetically even though they are insulin resistant don't gain as as much weight and there's also probably some lifestyle factors there as well like I certainly I was insulin resistant but because I was exercising 21 hours a week I probably buffered that a little bit so I I was still kind of overweight and BMI but I wasn't um, you were still viewed as leanish yeah Yeah, probably still viewed as leanish in their in their eyes yeah but so you can what we're talking about there there is is no definition for lean PCOS it's not it's more just whether a doctor 
assesses you on site value essentially yeah exactly yeah Yeah, i think that's a really good point is there's Mm. actually no definition we don't even use the term lean pcs because it's so irrelevant it Mm. doesn't mean anything it doesn't tell us anything about what's driving your pcs what's going on what you need to do it's just literally like physically you look lean like there's no other value value to it yeah no other value so i think um another really important point that's there were two kind of evidence-based recommendations around that impaired glucose tolerance is that healthcare professionals and women with PCOS should be aware that regardless of age and BMI, there is an increased risk of impaired fasting glucose, impaired glucose tolerance, and type 2 diabetes, and that glycemic status should be assessed at diagnosis in all adults and adolescents with PCOS. So yeah. yeah. So that should mean that if you that your your like doctor um, should be assessing your like your insulin Mm. and glucose the problem here though so i know that the recommendation was that the test should be the oral glucose tolerance test right which is what people it's often known as like the gestational diabetes test or the pregnancy test the problem with this though is it's it's quite expensive to do it's like quite i mean you have to be at the laboratory for a couple of hours yeah a couple yeah. of hours at least if they're actually doing it properly it should be three hours mm. um it's expensive to do because you are there for so long and they're taking three tests plus you've got the glucose drink to to take as well um but even then it's still actually really bad at picking up early stage insulin resistance it's kind of like that analogy of like a duck might be gliding really peacefully along the top of the water and we don't think it looks effortless but its little feet are like pedaling really hard under the water to keep that duck seamlessly swimming along and then that's the same thing that's happening with insulin our blood sugar might look okay in something like a glucose tolerance test but behind the scenes what what we don't see because we're not testing insulin is that insulin is like scrambling to try and keep keep that yeah keep keep that glucose as much in line as possible and it's not necessarily the high glucose that's causing the issue it's the high insulin that is so we actually really want to look at insulin when we're doing that kind of oral tolerance test as opposed to just glucose and that's where I know a lot of our patients get really stuck with their doctors too because doing that oral tolerance test with the glucose syrup it's very uncommon to look at insulin Um, Mm. and so this is kind of one of the points where we um, slightly disagree with the guidelines just because we think we've seen it be more beneficial to capture early stage insulin resistance when we're looking at insulins with that tolerance test however yeah. they're part of the way there so yeah. yeah it's certainly better than a fasting blood glucose exactly. or a fasting insulin or even an hba1c or a1c like for example an hba1c has been found to miss 94 percent of people who are insulin resistant crazy isn't it so it's only picking up six percent who are on that earliest only earlier end of insulin resistance yeah pick up that later stage maybe Mm. maybe and like more the type 2 diabetes but by the time we get to that we've had so many years of symptoms that have Mm. been down to our like high insulin that we could have been working on that we could have been fixing just through some changes whether that be like lifestyle changes and or drugs like all the combination Combination, whatever but so we would have a improved symptoms and b reduce the risk of actually developing type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes and this is a big thing as well Mm. right like 
the risk that we have with PCOS of developing cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes or preeclampsia in pregnancy is like something that we shouldn't just be ignoring. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important that regardless of your current weight or your level of health, like it's so important to be implementing these lifestyle yeah. changes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is that it is a lot harder for some people to get the real insulin test to really find that out, especially in some countries. The research has some really good studies on how to use symptoms to actually identify this, which are actually way more accurate. Indicators is what we call them. Yeah, Yeah. indicators are way more accurate than a lot of these other more blunt blood tests like A1C and fasting glucose. So this is what we use in our OV questionnaire. Um, And that's all based on what we know from the research is how these specific symptoms can tell us with up to 95% confidence, i.e. with 95% accuracy, whether someone is insulin resistant or not. And um, and in many cases, yeah, or pretty much in, in all cases, more accurately than an A1C or a fasting blood glucose or other um, more blunt blood test. Totally. So if you are wondering, like, is this something that is happening for me have I potentially got impaired um insulin function is this one of the drivers how do I understand what these indicators or symptoms are of this head to our questionnaire and you can go through that questionnaire you don't have to sign up for OV the app right away or at all but you can find out your drivers completely free so we yeah. can say yes based on what how you've answered these questions in the questionnaire we can see or we do suspect that insulin is a driver for your PCOS yeah and then if it is suspected we can link you up with if we're like hey this really sounds like we can't guarantee that then we can direct you to the places that you can go and get the really sensitive test so then you know categorically yes or no is this something that you need to focus on and I think that it's so helpful to do that when you're listening to these podcasts because so much of what we say is, well, oh, it depends if you've got this and it depends if you've got that. And that's really frustrating, but you don't have to be frustrated anymore. You can go and just find that out and then you know where to tune in and where to tune out, yeah, what's a factor a, for you or yeah, not. such a valid point. Yeah, how to make, even just listening to these podcasts, which is like a completely free um like resource yeah how can you make it even more personalized to yeah. you and get the most out of it so yeah <clears throat> highly recommend going and doing that questionnaire that's it so that's at ov.io um the link will be in the show notes as well if you just want to click there but otherwise just type into your browser ov.io ovie.io and then just hit the, any of the buttons on there they all take you through to the questionnaire so another um part on this kind of like lifestyle intervention and that exercise and diet and behavioral strategies they broke that down further into the best recommendations when it came to dietary interventions as well so this uh, the top evidence-based recommendation for dietary interventions for people with PCOS was healthcare professionals and women should consider that there is no evidence to support any one type of diet composition over another for metabolic, hormonal, reproductive, psychological, or anthropometric outcomes. I.e., keto diet is not superior for people with PCOS, right? Like, I think that is where, or or vegan, or fasting, and this is where, I know it's hard, like, God, help me, I've been there. Like, just when you are so frustrated, and you're trying everything, you're like, well, eating normally didn't work either. And I think this is where, 
oh, it's just like, well, just give me the answer. And when a diet like keto comes along and you see people or vegan or whatever it is, but you see people on YouTube talking about how they did this and they lost weight, then it can be really easy to go and follow that. And, and also too, for a lot of people, they get the success. Mm. And so it's like, well, this is the thing I have to do. But the problem is most of the time it's unsustainable for yeah. most people and not necessarily, and I, it also doesn't work for everybody with PCOS. Yeah. And it's not necessary. Mm-mm. You know, like why should we restrict ourselves to, you know, to these rules when we do not need to like we can have a way more normal life normal eating patterns and also achieve really great results yeah completely and so i think take it with a grain of salt if you see anyone promoting any one diet as being the silver bullet or like the be all or end all and yeah just take that and know that there's no evidence to suggest that and Mm. also even though you might have success following one particular diet, that doesn't mean that your best friend who has PCOS is going to have the same outcome as you. So even though kind of themes or parts or components of different diets might really resonate well for you, that doesn't mean that that's the case for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And again, this is why it's so hard when people like, people send us me Instagram DMs all the time, be like, what diet should I follow? I'm like, it's not quite as simple as that. Like, yeah. well, can you give me a meal plan? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I would, I would love it if it was that simple. Mm. I mean, we, but we probably, you know, we wouldn't do what we do if mm. it was that simple. It's, it's a lot more complex than that. And finding what works for you, and and even things like things talking about fasting. So I know we got a comment asking mm. about us to talk about fasting more in more detail. And the general rule for that for me is. It's mostly for most people it's a no because I just have not seen that it is not that it's not beneficial for a lot of people it could really be beneficial for for insulin and I mean research has shown that but I think that when you take the person as a whole and you look at their history of like dieting and restriction then this can be really triggering for further restricting and binging behaviors so it's not as simple as just going oh yeah well the research shows that intermittent fasting is really helpful for insulin so therefore you should do it it's like well no let's look at you and your health history and um and also too when we take into context women and what your goals are so if your goal was trying to get your cycle back then we actually know from the research that fasting and especially skipping breakfast Mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily about like just the not eating for 10 or 12 hours that's fine it's when we skip breakfast and we don't eat till one that actually is not great for helping us get our cycles back so all of and this is going to be the traditional way to exercise yes. fasting people find that the easiest to fit in with their lives totally yeah. because it's super antisocial when you're yeah. like oh, okay i can only have dinner at 4 30 or not at all yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you know yeah. most people find that really antisocial so whereas skipping breakfast is quite easy yeah. Um, so when you take all of that into context, then that's why it's mostly a no for most people. Um, but there are some instances where it can work really well. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So I think that's a really good summary and just really, we really resonate well with that evidence-based recommendation. Yeah. So I think that in terms of the, because we often hear a lot from medical professionals that the only reason that... <laughs> changing what you eat and your lifestyle works for PCOS is through weight loss and that's just not the case at all and this evidence guideline shows that that it's it is um, it actually says that lifestyle is effective even without weight loss and so again one of the other guidelines we'll talk about here more is 
the real focus off weight loss in mm. PCOS because they start to see how detrimental that really is in terms of just talking to people about well you've got to lose weight you've yeah. got to lose weight and so I think this is also really important for people that are maybe the leaner but also to those that maybe at a higher body weight is that improving or just changing what you're eating and how you're moving to work with your body instead of against it is so beneficial and has so much evidence behind it exclusive of weight loss that comes right back to well a it's it's also about symptoms beyond weight loss too but it's also it comes back down to as well like the importance of a your health in terms of cardiovascular risk type 2 diabetes risk um gestational diabetes risk but as well like your mental health, health. yeah totally. and your self-worth your body yeah. you know like looking at your body is not necessarily just a in terms of weight but what it can do for you and really changing that narrative can be so powerful in healing that relationship with food and and even exercise yeah and i think um, what this guideline does pull out really well is highlighting the high prevalence of disordered eating or food restriction um Mm in people with PCOS as well it really tries to change the language around um weight and how how medical professionals speak to that that's like a big change so these guidelines came out um in 2018 and they've done a five-year review and these are the new guidelines and so when we say these are some of the new changes that's kind of what we're referring to and in these 2023 guidelines huge change around the language that we use towards weight yeah so the 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 guideline is to not use the term overweight or obese but instead use the term at a higher body weight or what we like to say is that people that or people or women that have weight gain as a symptom of PCOS and I think that that puts the power back to us is realizing it is not our fault because Mm. so much of our lives we've been told that our weight gain is due to what we are doing as opposed to a symptom of what's happening inside our body and so this is what we are really really hot on is helping you to see that weight gain is a symptom of what's happening inside your body as opposed to you not eating well enough you not exercising and it's and even though we're saying you can change what you're eating and, and and improve your symptoms we don't mean that you've been deliberately doing it wrong or this is your fault it's you're you're doing what you're doing and we can help you just make a few tweaks to that to to get the results that you want but it doesn't mean that we think that you've been deliberately or even if you have that it's your problem or fault it's just like hey we can help you modify that slightly and get what you're looking for but also not change your lifestyle drastically completely in order to get that and and on the flip side sometimes we see even people in a like at a higher body weight they're eating the least and exercising the most of some of our clients so sometimes it's actually giving them that confidence and that agency hey you actually need to eat more you actually need to slow down we need to reverse change the direction of the flywheel that is driving this weight gain and then we can you know um see more improvement or or better health outcomes yeah Yeah, it's such a good point it's such a good point that often people at a higher body weight are eating the least and i think this is what people you know if you're listening to this you go oh my god yes Mm. i feel like i have been restricting so much and so much more than any of my friends or family and yet I'm the one gaining weight. It's like, yeah, we hear you. Yeah. We hear you. And it's not your fault. Well, yeah. yeah exactly. So that's um, that, you know, all about the 
lifestyle and eating and the fact that you can and see it is beneficial even without weight loss. Another big piece um, that has come out in this newer guidelines, these 2023 guidelines, is the impact that PCOS has on your mental health and living with this sort of condition, having to advocate for yourself, feeling like your body's not doing what it what what it should, including all of the weight stigma or feelings that you might have around that. So 70 to 80% of people with PCOS are experiencing low mood or depressive symptoms, which is so upsetting. And we really need things like these guidelines to help change the way that people view their body around or, yeah. uh, Absolutely. Getting support with their mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that part of, we know that part of it is about how we view our body. Like, although depression and anxiety and mental health is often not circumstantial, it's often but, yeah. chronic, mm. but definitely these parts that we know that people are going through things like fertility treatment have poorer mental health than those that are not. And that is very circumstantial in terms of very much around the feelings of know that you can't change anything maybe feelings of you know not getting the answers about what's actually going wrong yeah Yeah, hopelessness being triggered by everything around you every time you walk out the door or even you're in your own home Mm. seeing things on your screens like it puts you into that fight and flight state and it sets you up for higher anxiety and and lower mood and you know when we live in a state of chronic stress and anxiety we deplete our body hugely and then that can then flow into a more just lower level state yeah. of, of depression too. And I think, yeah, it's it's multifaceted and mental health can't be rid of yeah. this one thing, but I think that's a, a big part that they also put in the recommendations is that mental health screening needs to be a part of diagnosis as well. So I think mm, that's so important. That's really interesting. I was going to say that one of the things we know that it's it can be triggered by poor mental health can be triggered by things what was interesting for me so they put a big focus on hirsutism or facial body hair growth Mm -hmm. in these guidelines which i think is so good because they're they and they even said we're moving away from kind of thinking about pcos as a fertility condition which is like thank god even though i mean i have written a book literally getting pregnant with pcos because that's the that's the area of specialty that I was interested in Mm. and I saw that there just wasn't enough information out there so that's the thing but it doesn't it's by no means the one thing that I look at or think that everyone with PCOS wants to get pregnant or is interested in that and so I think that it's so good to see this because it means that you can no longer go to your doctor and they say oh we'll just take the pill and come back to see me when you want to get pregnant because it's like no actually there's way more going on for me and that's not even on my agenda and so the focus on you know other things that are really important like facial and body hair was really good to see and one of the things they put in the recommendation was around how effective laser hair removal is in PCOS which is really effective but one thing they actually saw was that the evidence showed that people that got laser hair removal it wasn't just effective for treating the hirsutism it actually improved their depression and anxiety scores yeah and the quality of life quality of life yeah which is incredible that Mm -hmm. something so I, I mean, A, I think it's really sad that mm. there is so much emphasis on the way that our body looks that that could lead to poor mental health. Yeah. But that is the society we live in. And so it is great it's that we have... acknowledging that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then helping put things into place. So, yeah, again, at the um, launch of these guidelines, there was a big talk around how can we 
get funding and get more um, more access to laser hair removal for people with PCOS because at the moment it is not a cost-effective option. Um, mm. But they see it being so beneficial that that's kind of going to be their next crusade. That as well as changing the name of PCOS as well. Mm, yeah. yeah. But actually on that note of like the crusade to get um, laser hair removal funded for PCOS, everybody listening to this podcast should contact, if you have health insurance, you should contact your health insurance provider, provide them with these guidelines and say, you should be funding laser hair removal for someone with PCOS because that's where it starts from. It starts from a groundswell of people demanding this and saying, this is something that is a treatment just like the pill Mm -hmm. or metformin. It is a treatment for the condition that I'm going through. And we need help with this. We need help to fund this treatment. I'm not in charge of like my hair, my face, my body growing these hairs. And so therefore I should get access to that treatment. Same thing about the guidelines clearly state that you should get you know, help with making dietary and lifestyle changes. So it's like you should be contacting your insurance provider or your ministry of health if you're in a public health system and be like, give us help with actually making these changes. And that's something that we're on a crusade with Ovi about partnering with health insurers and um, and public health. I mean, although that is a really, really hard, hard, hard long battle for us, but it Especially is- Especially with so many US-based clients too, yeah. Yeah, but it is something that we're actively working on um, is, partnering with them so that you can get your OV subscription funded under your health insurance mm. um, and because we're so passionate about the fact that you this should be you know yeah. like the guidelines clearly state that this should be a treatment so why is it any different than getting your pill funded or your metformin funded yeah completely there was one other thing that we still aren't quite on the same page with um, the guidelines for as well and that's around the combined oral contraceptive pill so they see that this can be recommended um, in reproductive age adults with PCOS for management of hirsutism, which we totally do agree. agree with. Yeah. Um, but and or regulating their menstrual cycles. So I think that's where we differ slightly, and we we don't see hormonal birth control regulating your cycle. Totally it's shutting it down. Yeah. I th- and I think that's like the the what is so important is the terminology used mm-hmm. right like I think that if they just change that terminology slightly to say um regulating a bleed yes totally mm-hmm. I can see I can totally get that I can get on board with that but what I can't get on board with is regulating a cycle because a cycle encompasses everything about the menstrual cycle which is that you your body goes to your ovaries and selects like a follicle that it thinks it's going to be able to ovulate with and it grows that follicle and then it ovulates that follicle throws it out into the fallopian tube to a weight um, sperm and then your body will release or the corpus luteum that's left over from that that follicle will release progesterone and then if your body realizes that you're not yeah yeah yeah. and then if it will realize if it realizes that you're not pregnant it will um, start to shut that process down start the producer will drop off and then you'll get a bleed right that is the full cycle and why it's called the menstrual cycle because there is a no kind of beginning and end it's a continuous loop like literally where did it start the the period or the ovulation yeah, like it's, it's like the chicken and egg, egg. Yeah. yeah so it's a constant cycle whereas a being on the pill you do not get a cycle you do not ovulate you do not develop that egg 
it is a synthetic estrogen and progestin that stop that. That is how, literally how it works as a contraceptive, is by stopping you from ovulating and creating that cycle. And then when you stop taking that, um, that pill, then you get a withdrawal bleed because you've stopped taking those hormones. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a nuance. But what was, it's not just about us being finicky at the language. Mm. I think it was also in the release of the guidelines. They were quite bold about, about that. It, it, you know, they, I think that what they said is, don't trust anyone who is telling you not to go on the pill. They're just trying to sell you something or buy your product or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, we don't agree with that. At all. No, we it's, don't agree with that. And we also agree that that doesn't take into the account the agency thing that they've just specified in the guidelines, that, that we should be doing joint decision-making with our healthcare mm. professional about what to do and part of that is all of the benefits and like pros and cons so one of the reasons why they're so hot on people with PCOS taking the pill is that it does reduce the risk of endometrial cancer but as and this is based on you getting a regular shedding or a regular yes. bleed so that that tissue that endometrial lining isn't getting building up too thick and then causing and sticking around too long and replicating in a bad way that might trigger cancer yeah, yeah. Definitely getting regularly, but also the fact that then you're also, when you're on the pill, you're not producing high amounts of estrogen. estrogen yeah. And that's where, as well, if you're having, even if you had a normal cycle, but your body's producing a lot of estrogen, you might get a, like what's called endometrial hyperplasia or thickening of the endometrial lining, which then puts you at risk of, an, of endometrial cancer. But what we pointed out in a few episodes ago about the hormonal birth control is that, yes, that is true. But actually, on the flip side, it increases your risk of breast cancer. And breast cancer is like by a factor of, I think it was 10. We'll have to go back to the episode and pull out the stats that we provided there. But you can listen to that episode. Is so much more common than endometrial cancer. So it's like, yeah, we're like reducing this one risk. Endometrial cancer is a really rare cancer. It's really aggressive, but it's also really rare. And so by reducing the risk of that we're actually increasing the risk of a much more common form of cancer and it's like not even whether that's a more rare or more common type of cancer but the guideline also said that it's uh, there is a low risk of endometrial cancer cancer. for people with pcos so it's it's a you're already at a low risk yeah and then it's even lower risk and we also don't know the relative risk that taking the medication Yes. You know, like actually how much it reduces that risk too. So it's, it's yeah, very technical. And I think, yes, it has incredible anti-androgen effects for acne and hirsutism. But yeah. what we've talked about millions of times over is that it's just masking the problem. It's not, it's not solving the problem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And a, and a Band-Aid is such a relevant tool to be used at some times. Absolutely. absolutely. Definitely see the benefit, but it's just... It is what it is, yeah. right? A band-aid is what it is. Like, you're not going to turn a band-aid into a vaccine, right? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. no, don't even, um, you know, those two things are completely non-comparable in the medical world. So, I and also too, I think the thing is like, so is their whole life just to avoid cancer? Yeah. You know, like, is, is yeah. everything we do just to avoid cancer? What about all the other things that are really important when it comes to taking the hormonal birth control? Like, the really greater risk of depression and anxiety which is already so much yeah. higher in PCOS so totally or osteoporosis of not ovulating or yep. like other other things that there are so many other risks that come along with taking the hormonal birth control as well yeah and and not other risks of like 
um, the chronic or long-term diseases, but also just other changes to your hormonal profile and your body and even things like your libido and, and yeah. other like Shrinki- of Shrinking life. your clitoris by yeah. up to 20%, um, affecting, your, yeah. affecting your mate selection, yeah. so many things. And we are absolutely not anti-pill. I mean, no, anyone that's listening to this, yeah. you guys have heard us. We're really agnostic. We're like, we can see, again, as we said before, it's a really great Band-Aid. It is an incredible contraceptive. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is It just designed comes back for. to having that agency to make an informed decision because you've got both sides of the story and I think that's where we are tripped up a wee bit here where we don't think that this particular evidence-based recommendation encompasses that understanding of what it's doing and how it's working to do that it's still quite yeah vague yeah I'm not angry about it I'm just disappointed yeah that's it (laughs) I am I am just like you know like there are so many great towards moves mm-hmm. that this is what we always talk about in OV with our patients is making like towards moves there were so many amazing towards moves in these guidelines and that's the one thing I'm just like it's just a bit stagnant and all <laughs> and also too you know like you know it just kind of contradicts the great mm. stuff about the joint decision making and agency and everything else and then be like but just go know, on the pill just yeah. go on the pill it's like yeah, ah, man. yeah. yeah. anyway so, beside the point but I think that just realize that that's probably still going to be pushed and that's okay but you can also make your own decision and also just fall back on if someone's kind of push pressuring you or feel you feel pressure to to do that because they're saying well you have to go on this to get a regular bleed it's like well hold on we're supposed to be making a joint decision here about my and I don't really understand the full picture about how that's regulating my cycle can you can we please go into this in more detail and that you can ask questions and 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 say no even if it is the recommendation it's like okay cool i see your point Mm. i see where you're coming from doctor but i also this is my side and i don't agree we agree to disagree on that one yeah completely so yeah i think um for anyone who's really interested it's a hefty read it's a big old document but they have popped all of the main recommendations to the top of the guidelines and then if you want to read deeper onto every um breakdown bit by bit you can scroll right through or search find or things like that but that's up on the monash website under the 2023 international evidence-based guidelines yeah but i think the main thing for you guys as well was that you don't need to read these i mean this is our job is to deduce from them what is important and put that into our work, whether that's in our OV app or whether mm. that's in our PCS protocol or in our one-on-one work with patients, is to actually just take those and, and make that... Make it usable for, for you yeah. guys, completely. And, and yeah, so we're always looking at the guidelines <laughs> in like relation to what we do. And But yeah, and if you really wanted to have some evidence to take to your doctor, that's kind of where to find them. Absolutely. So that's all for today. I hope that that helps you in your conversations and your agency with your medical professionals, but also just being able to sift through some of the stuff that you're seeing online about, again, maybe it's about a specific diet for PCOS or maybe it's about, you know, a specific form. Same thing with diet, same thing with exercise. It's like there's no one exercise. Um, So when I get a request from (laughs) she finds for most effective workouts for arm flab, just realize that there's, that doesn't exist. (laughs) seriously these are what's the other one worst foods for bone density oh that's not even a bad one there's so many of them that are just absolutely awful but when you're seeing things like that just realize that there isn't one miracle 
exercise or diet or supplement mm-hmm. um there's just no silver bullet yeah no silver bullet it's it's all about understanding you what's driving your pcos what your history is so mm-hmm. like you know do you have a long dieting history mm-hmm. um and then also kind of where you're starting from at the moment and then we can be a lot more specific about what's going to make the biggest difference to you and you can focus on the four or five things that make the tweaks that make the biggest difference and not have to cut out lots of food groups and lots of like or do lots of exercise or do you know you're not allowed to run or mm. following these other really restrictive do high guidelines. intensity but don't go for runs do yeah. this but don't go for that it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's just can Figuring be a lot more which of those options yeah. fits best for, for you, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and and not just that oh well it depends it's yeah. like yes it does depend but we can give you quite a simple answer to it depends as well exactly. and something that's like just for you so if you're interested, then head to ovi.io. First thing, just fill out that questionnaire and then you'll find out where your drivers are. And then if you subscribe and download the Ovi app, then it will tell you what the most important changes for you are. You don't have to figure this out on your own anymore. And that was the number one driving force behind us creating this is my personal experience of spending 10 years trying to figure out what to do that would actually make a big difference and going through all the pain and feeling like I had to figure this out on my own because no one that I was talking to, no matter whether it was a woman's specialist doctor or a other health professional could actually give me the recipe. And so I had to figure this out. And then working through with lots of patients, I've seen exactly the same problem is that feeling like you have to do it all on your own, all your own research and just feeling that weight and that burden and all of the time and energy and cost wasted in that process too. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love your questions and your feedback and your ideas. As we said before, someone messaged us on Instagram asking about a breakdown in fasting. And so we love hearing from you and it gives us so much of an idea about what you're enjoying, what you're not enjoying, what ideas you've got, what questions you've still got so that we can create podcasts that are more beneficial for you. Yeah, so on Spotify, you can also, there's new question and answer box. So oh, cool. pop anything into, if you're listening here on Spotify, then you can pop anything directly into that too. And then also follow us. If you give us a follow on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening to, that helps uh, more people with PCOS find our podcast better so yeah yeah. you can also give us um ideas for future podcasts by leaving us a five-star review (laughs) (laughs) and that too (laughs) no just kidding we as you know if if this is your first podcast we normally don't say something so blatant like that but we never ask for like reviews and stuff but we do really appreciate them so thank you so much because it does mean that we can get the word out to more people who want a that kind of more impartial advice rather than just the like well this is the one diet to follow and if you don't listen to this then you know you are not worth my time (laughs) so thanks so much for all of your amazing reviews and feedback now stand by for our disclaimer the information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information including about the PCOS nutritionist products and services and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat 
or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.